Good morning, church. Not sure how you're coming in here this morning. If you're coming in feeling like your walk with the Lord is strong and your joy in Him is high, or if you're feeling like you're barely just hanging on, or if you're not sure if the Lord even exists, and if He does, if He's kind and good and powerful. I am thankful that every week we have an opportunity to gather together and to seek the Lord together and to sit together under the authority of His Word and to ask for His Spirit to speak yet again. And He's so faithful to do that. So let's pray as we wrap up this series, this long series in the life of David. This is our finale uh, this morning. Next week, we begin a five-week series in Romans chapter 8, how the gospel brings us safely home. And it'll be a chance to just soak in that mountaintop uh, chapter, Romans chapter 8. And then we'll start a new sermon series in Ephesians beginning the Sunday after Labor Day. So let me pray. Let's turn to the Lord's Word together. Father, young and old, in this room this morning, male and female, variety of backgrounds, variety of countries from which we originate, what unites us is the gospel of your Son. And so for the Christians in the room this morning, I pray that you would help us to see Christ, the one who triumphed, the King who triumphed over death. And for our friends here this morning who haven't yet submitted themselves to Christ, who haven't yet turned from their sin to trust Christ, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would convict, that you would lift up Christ, that you would exalt him in our midst and help him to become irresistible. We depend on your strength, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Three factors make death scary. One factor that makes death scary is wondering how we will die. Will it come quickly in a car crash? Will it come excruciatingly as cancer eats away at our bodies? The second factor that makes death scary is the question, what happens after I die? Am I ready to meet God? Or perhaps for some of you, the question is, does God actually even exist? The third factor that makes death scary is the fear. We fear the pain of being separated from people we love. We fear leaving behind a spouse or children or friends. Death is legitimately threatening and intimidating, even for Christians. And that's because death is an intruder. Death is an intruder that's forced its way into God's good creation. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Before human beings sinned, there was no death in God's good creation. Death entered after sin. That's what we learn from Romans chapter 5. Death is the downstream and the just consequence or result of our insistence on rebelling against God. Death comes as a result of that, and it's just. The question for God then was, do I leave humanity to deal with the consequence of their rebellion, or do I enter in? 
Do I redeem this? And the fact that God decided to redeem this, the fact that God decided to ransom and rescue and reconcile sinners who were under the consequence of death means that we have good news. We have great news. Therefore, Christians shouldn't avoid death. One pastor says it's our, one of our greatest arguments to our non-Christian friends that death is coming. We can all agree to that. We can ignore death. We can pretend that it's not there. We can exercise and we can eat well, but death cannot be finally avoided. Unless Jesus returns first, death is coming for all of us. Death is always hauntingly present in our lives. As we finish this sermon series through David's life, we come to his death this morning. God's king, David, was supposed to reign over a land within which God's people could rest from their enemies. But by the time David's grandsons sit on his divided throne, Israel plummets into chaos, ending with deportation. You see, for God's people to experience an eternal rest from every single enemy, they needed an eternal king. They needed one who was not going to be defeated by death, but one who would triumph over death. One who would not only protect him from the threats of people, but would be able to protect God's people from the threats of Satan, of sin, and of death. A king who's able to put every rule, every power, every authority under his feet. And so this morning, the main idea is this. Behold the king who triumphed over death to provide eternal rest from every enemy for every nation. First, let's look at the king who died, David, in 1 Kings chapter 1, all the way through 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 12. David is God's choice for king over God's people. He snatches David out of the, the pastures, shepherding sheep, and makes him king and shepherd over God's people, Israel. And his reign, as we've seen, is filled with heartfelt obedience and heartbreaking failure. Yet, according to God, David is an example of a man after God's own heart. And that's because of the presence of God's Spirit in his life. And it's because David is usually marked by repentance and faith. One summary of David's life in 2 Samuel 8.15 says that David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. That's the general slope of his life. David's life is messy like our lives are messy, but God was not finished with David. Da David was used by God in his generation to be faithful. David had tremendous wealth, he had unprecedented power, and he had worldwide fame. But death is the great equalizer. David lies in his bed shivering in this chapter, unable to warm up, an older man waiting for death to come. And so in verses 1 through 4 of 1 Kings chapter 1, we read of David's final selfish relationship. Look at verse 1 of 1 Kings 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servant said to him, let a young woman be sought for my Lord, the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my Lord, the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended him, but the king knew her not." 
David can't warm up, and his advisors recruit Abishag, the Shunammite, to be the solution. Now, it could be that she's intended to be merely and only a nurse, but though this is discreet, sexual intimacy seems to be the goal. But that's not possible, as we read in the last sentence. The king knew her not, which may be the tipping point for the rebellion that's about to transpire. Now, David is a faithful man. David is a sinful man. And these two things are always true for all of us as God's people. And so we want to be clear about where David has fallen short of God's standard. And we want to be clear about what it looks like for a follower of God filled with his spirit to still struggle with spiritual blindness. We see this, we see this in David. The bad habits of youth reap a harvest in old age. The bad habits of youth will reap a harvest in old age. David rejected God's best for him. David knew from Genesis chapter 2 that God's design for marriage was for one woman and one man. He, he knew this from Genesis 2. David knew from Deuteronomy 17 that the king was forbidden from marrying many wives. And yet David said no to God's design throughout his life, collecting multiple wives and many concubines. And at the finish line, he leaves himself vulnerable. And his servants who have watched his life, who have watched his practices, who have watched his habits, thought they knew what David needed. One more wife at the finish line. But the warmth David needs is found in the one flesh union that God intended. David had many wives, but he had no real intimacy. No matter what the world pressures us to believe, satisfying intimacy is not found in many partners. Obedience to God in almost every situation is a stiff upstream swim against the rushing current of the world. It is almost always that way. Young person and older person, do you long for satisfying intimate relationships? Then pursue God's design. Proverbs 5.18 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Pursue the spouse that God has given you as a gift. Expose the lie that satisfaction can be found in numbers. Whether those numbers are consumed on your phone or consumed in person. Rejoice in the wife or the husband of your youth. And if God has not provided the spouse that your heart yearns for, then this is a reminder to pursue purity with the same fervor, to entrust your desires to the Lord, trusting Him moment by moment to satisfy the thirst that you have, the good thirst that you have for meaningful friendships, and throw yourself into meaningful, godly relationships with the church family where you are known and seen and cared for and loved, and when you can do all those same things for your church family. The presence of this final selfish relationship is a reminder of David's sinful marriage practices, that David was like us. He had clay feet like we have. But it also sets the context for the final rebellion that David's about to endure. This is 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 5 through 53, and we're going to take this pretty quickly. David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah led to God's judgment against David's house. God says, the sword is never going to depart from your house, David. 
Amnon is David's oldest son. Amnon is murdered by David's second oldest son, Absalom, for Amnon's mistreatment of his sister Tamar. Absalom then attempts to steal David's throne before he's murdered by David's general Joab. So oldest son, second oldest son, now murdered. And as David nears death, his third oldest living son, Adonijah, attempts to steal his throne as well. And in verse 7, we read that Adonijah has the help of two of David's trusted advisors. Joab is general and Abiathar, one of David's priests. And in verses 8 through 10, Adonijah makes a public sacrifice to the Lord. And he invites all of the who's who of Israel to this sacrifice. He does it in front of all of David's sons except for Solomon. He invites all the royal officials of David's tribe, Judah. But he does not invite the leaders loyal to David and to David's purpose to see that his son Solomon takes the throne, not Adonijah. And so Nathan the prophet and Benaiah, the head of David's royal bodyguard, and the 30 or 35 mighty men who have served David faithfully, and his son Solomon, they're not invited to the sacrifice. And Nathan hears of this sacrifice, Nathan the prophet, and in verses 11 through 27, Nathan and Bathsheba work together to make an appeal to the dying King David. Look at verse 15 of 1 Kings chapter 1. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? And she said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me and shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. Adonijah has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and he has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon your servant he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. Bathsheba goes into the king's presence boldly and convincingly telling David what's happening even though he does not know it. And Nathan comes in as planned right on, his, right on her heels and says in verse 25, For Adonijah has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, cattle, sheep in abundance, has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priests. And behold, they are eating and drinking before Adonijah and saying, Long live King Adonijah! But me, Nathan, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehudiah, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. And here's his question to King David. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king, and you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? David, I know you're dying. I know you're physically weak. I know you're tired. I know you can't warm up. But your house is in danger, David. God's purposes are being trampled. His kingdom is in peril. And you need to throw some water on your face and come out and explain who it is who will take the throne after you. Brothers and sisters, if you're in your 70s or your 80s or your 90s, or there's even two of you in your hundreds, I want to lean in to you in particular for a moment. 
because you don't have the luxury of taking your foot off the spiritual pedal of your heart. There is no room for you to coast to the finish line. And I think that's part of what we're intended to see in Nathan's rebuke of David. So the question is, how do you do that? How do you do that in your 70s and your 80s and your 90s plus? First, don't stop enjoying your Bible. An older saint came to me a few weeks ago and said that the older she gets, the more she reads the Bible and not other good Christian books. The Bible has just become sweeter. You can also be present. We need to see you worship. We need to hear you pray. We need to watch you endure aging and suffering. Be fearless in evangelism. Make use of every deference your age provides you to awkwardly step into that conversation and share the hope you have in Christ. And be intentional in discipling. We need you to lean in. We need you to pass the gospel down to us. We need you to teach us how to love our spouses, how to walk with Jesus through suffering, and how to prepare for death. We need you to do this. And we need you to pray continually. I think that perhaps one day we will see how the prayers of older saints sustained our church through things that we didn't even know we needed prayer about. Pray for faithfulness to God. Pray that His word and His mission would consume us. Pray for us to push His gospel to the very ends of the earth. One of the many things I love about our church family is how many of you in your 70s plus are doing this, are pressing into the church family, are stepping on the accelerator as long as you can until the Lord calls you home. Sprint to the finish line with all your energy. Don't spend time feeling guilty about what you can no longer do. Invest in what you can still do. Glorify God and build His church. You may retire from your job, but you will not retire from your Christianity. We need you, and you won't regret it. Now, David, based on the courageous warrior we've known him to be, responds exactly how we would expect him to respond. He ensures that God's purposes are met, even at the finish line. In verses 18 through 40, he gathers Bathsheba and Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the bodyguard to his side, and he gives them instructions on anointing Solomon king after him. Look at verse 38. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehudiah, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites, they went down and had Solomon ride on, the king, on king David's mule, and they brought him to Gihon. And there Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. David's not running from this fight. David will see to it that Solomon, his son, is anointed king in his place. And the sound of this moment is so thunderous it interrupts Adonijah's rebellious celebration of him appointing himself king. And in verses 41 through 50, we read of the frantic response of the rebels around Adonijah. And for Adonijah's part, he runs to the Lord's altar and he grabs a hold of the horns. 
And in verse 52, we see Solomon's response. Solomon said, if Adonijah will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hair shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent and they brought him down from the altar. And Adonijah came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. Solomon pardons his brother and sends him back to his house in peace. And that's David's final rebellion. Now, look at David's final dying request. 2 Kings 2, verses 1 through 12. There's two parts of David's final dying request. The first is a call to faithfulness. Look at verses 1 through 4. 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, and his rules and his testimonies. As it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. A couple observations here about David's call for Solomon's faithfulness. David's clear. Solomon, I'm going the way of all the earth. Life is short and death is certain and I'm about to pass over. Death is the great equalizer for kings and for servants, for rich and for poor. Death is coming for every one of us. Therefore, Solomon, be strong and show yourself to be a man. Knowing that life is short and death is certain, you need to dig deep. You need to keep the charge of the Lord. You need to fulfill the ministry that he's called you to. Do the job that he's put in front of you. Walk in the Lord's ways. Keep his word. Obey his instructions. Be faithful so that you may prosper. We don't need to be bashful at holding forth the joy of faithful obedience. Obedience to God is good. It's satisfying. He's the one who created us. He knows how we are most satisfied. The world may not understand why submitting to God's design for sex makes Christians so happy or why denying ourselves and following Christ makes us overflow with deep fulfillment or why living for the next world instead of this one is so thrilling and satisfying. The world may not know that, but we can show them what it's like to be satisfied in God. David ends by saying, show yourself a man, obey the Lord so that you may prosper, so that God can establish his word. God's covenants have a conditional and an unconditional element. God made promises first to Abraham, then to Moses, and then he gathers those up and repeats them again to David. God's people need a king to fulfill the conditions of the covenant for them perfectly. A king who will stay on the throne forever, ensuring their completion. So first there's a call to Solomon to remain faithful, and next is a call to judgment. And in verses 5 through 12, 5 through 9, David asked Solomon to bring justice to three particular individuals. The first is to Joab. He says, Solomon, Joab is a rascal. Joab murdered two men in a time of peace for blood that they spilled in a time of war. Solomon, don't let his gray head go to the grave in peace. On the other hand, Barzillai must be treated with continual generosity. He met my needs when I fled from Absalom. 
He met the needs of my family the entire time I was in exile. For Barzillai continued to be generous. But to Shimei, the one who cursed me when I ran from Absalom, I said I would not kill him, but you know the best thing to do to a worthless man who's cursed the Lord's anointed. And then in verses 10 through 12, we have the narrator's final synopsis and summary of David. Look at verse 10. Then David slept with his fathers, was buried in the city of David, and the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. When David closes his eyes in death, his kingdom and his throne are firmly in the hands of Solomon. And Solomon is surrounded by good men and women, loyal, faithful, strong men and women who will rule with him. The land has peace. The throne is secure. The kingdom is firm in the hands of Solomon. But only for one more generation. Because Solomon will start strong and end where his father did. Limping because of Solomon's lack of faithfulness to God. Because Solomon is not the king that God's people need either. By the time David's grandsons split the throne and take the stage, the kingdom divides violently in two. And civil war will mark God's people. They are invaded, deported, judged by foreign nations by the Lord for their sinful rebellion. And God's people are out of the land without rest from their enemies. They're back to their sojourning identity. King David, you see, cannot protect God's people from their enemies. King David can't do it because King David is dead. God's people need a king who's triumphed over death. And that's where we turn now. In Acts 13, we find the Apostle Paul in the city of Antioch. And it's a Sabbath day, and Paul goes into the tabernacle, into the synagogue. And while he's sitting in the synagogue, the leaders of the synagogue send him a note and invite him to stand up and speak if he'd like. And so Paul obliges, he stands up, and he preaches a sermon. The sermon platforms David, the ultimate king, the leader who would provide rest for God's people from all their enemies. And he reminds them that David was called a man after God's own heart, a man who would do God's will. And then he tells the Jewish people in that synagogue that from David came Jesus, the Messiah, the branch, the root. But the Jewish nation rejected Jesus, the son of David. And though the Jews found Jesus guiltless, they demanded that Pilate execute him. And Paul continues in that sermon and he says he was nailed to a tree and he was crucified. And then he was taken down from that tree and he was laid in a tomb. But God rose him from the dead. Here's Acts 13, verse 36. In the middle of that sermon, Paul says, For David... After he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and he saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. David was a great king, Paul says. 
Paul says to the Jews in that synagogue in Antioch, David was a great king. David fulfilled God's purposes for him in his generation. Paul says, job well done, David. Not a perfect job, but a faithful job. But David couldn't finally protect God's people from their enemies because he died and he experienced the corruption of death. Remember God's promise to David that he made in 2 Samuel verse 7. Promises of a land, a name, and a son. David, I will make your name famous in all the earth. My people will dwell in a land where they can rest from their enemies. No more sojourning. And David, I will give you a son who will rule on your throne forevermore. But King David couldn't fulfill these promises because King David was dead. But King Jesus triumphed over death. God raised Jesus so that he wasn't corrupted by death. He destroyed, in fact, the one who had power over death, Satan, that wicked angel. And in destroying Satan, Jesus delivered those who through fear of death were enslaved to lifelong slavery, Hebrews chapter 2. And since Christ was raised from the dead, we are no longer trapped in our sins. And even now, Jesus is destroying every rule and every authority and every power that stands against him, 1 Corinthians 15. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself, that intruder into God's creation because of sin. And when the time comes for death to experience its final judgment, Jesus will take it in its hand and he will throw death into the lake of fire. That's a king who triumphed over death. Jesus is the king who will fulfill the promises God made through David because Jesus triumphed over death. Behold the king who triumphed in order to provide rest for God's people in a land where they will rest from every enemy and that rest will be enjoyed by every nation. Here's God's word to the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. I saw, Daniel says, in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. You remember those storm clouds last night? With the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given by the Ancient of Days dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion, this son of man who will come on the clouds, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus' name, the son of man, the one who will come in the clouds in he from heaven, his name will be famous in all the earth. All peoples, nations, languages, and tribes all over the earth, they will know him. And men and women and children from every tribe and tongue will worship him and serve him. And his people, drawn from every tribe and nation, will dwell in a land where we will rest from our enemies. He has all power and authority and dominion. And over this kingdom and on this throne, King Jesus will reign forevermore. 
His kingdom will never be shaken. It will never pass away. It will never be destroyed. And so he is the king we need. He is the king who can ensure peace and rest from every enemy in an everlasting way. There are two kinds of people in the world, I'm convinced. Those who wade slowly into the pool and those who march up to the end and jump in. Will death remain threatening and intimidating even for Christians? Yes, I think it will. It is an intruder. But the victory of Jesus means that death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin. He conquered it. The power of sin is the law. He fulfilled it. But thanks be to God, Paul says, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So friend, if you haven't yet come to the one who's defeated death, that great intruder, that thing that intimidates all of us, come. Heed the promise and the warning and the invitation of King Jesus from Revelation 22. Behold, King Jesus says, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. Blessed, happy are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. The ones who wash their blood, according to Revelation 5, in the blood of the lamb, who wash their robes in the blood of the lamb, blessed are they. They come into the city by the gates. But outside of that city, outside of that land where God's people will rest from their enemies are the dogs and the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who practices and loves falsehood. It's not as if God's people inside the city are not marked by those things. They are. We are. We've just washed our robes in the blood of the Lamb. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. Why? so that we might heed them, so that we might accept his invitation to come. He closes with this sentence. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Church family, behold the triumph of Jesus over death. Behold the fact that we are caught up in his victory by faith, which means, of course, that we can face death with the stubborn resolve and hopeful grief and even joy. So follow King Jesus across the street and to the very ends of the earth and follow King Jesus through cancer diagnosis and treatments and hospice care, knowing that your faith will soon be made sight. The eternal city that we are longing for is far closer than we dare imagine. And your king waits for you with joy. The spirit of God and the bride of Christ say, come, Come and let one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice in your victory. We are sheltered by your victory. The victory is not ours. The victory is yours. And through faith, we gain access to that victory. Through faith, we're caught up in that victory. Through faith, we have hope. 
Through faith, we have everlasting life, and it comes without price. If there's any person in this room who hasn't yet bent the knee to Christ, turning from their sin and joyfully coming, I pray that they would, even now. In Christ's name, amen.